electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. And welcome to the CNBC special, Taking Stock. I am Brian Sullivan. Jim has the week off tonight. A deep dive into the world's second biggest economy, China, moving to ease its strict zero COVID measures sooner than many expected. All amid a spike in cases there. That is touching off concerns. The move could actually cause more short-term pain, not just for China, but around the world. But more short-term pain is not what any investor is looking for. The Shanghai Composite is pacing for its worst year in four. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong on track for its worst year in more than a decade. As COVID, political uncertainty, competition, and more all weigh on that nation and its investors. And despite today's rally that erased most of the week's losses for the Dow and the S&P back home, all three averages do remain on pace for their worst year since 2008. No doubt, China, a part of the U.S. investing story as well. Tonight, we are taking stock of what it all means for you and your money. Here's a taste of what's on deck in a few moments. Haven Capital's Kyle Bass will join us. He'll get the outspoken critics' take on China's reopening, their trade, and more. And when you talk Chinese industry, you have to talk about semiconductors, the companies most exposed to the region, the ones best positioned to weather any storms. Plus, your playbook for next year, CIO of Crane Shares, which runs the China Tech ETF KWeb where he sees any opportunity right now. All right, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us tonight and all this week. We're going to get to all that. But let us begin with the travel impact. The U.S. responding to China's reopening with a counter plan set to require all travelers coming from China to the U.S. to provide a negative COVID test before entering America beginning next week. This and other countries are following suit. Seema Modi is tracking that and many other travel angles for us and one of the biggest and most critical industries we have with China, which is travel. Seema. It really is, Brian. Good evening. That's right. Japan, Italy, and the U.S. are among the six countries that have now announced new testing requirements for passengers traveling from China. And experts say a lack of transparency around the virus could lead other countries to do the same. Now, Chinese stocks have been rallying over the last month as Beijing takes steps to reopen its economy. Evercore ISI not expecting the country to backpedal, even in the face of rising cases. Starting January 8th, travelers will no longer have to quarantine on their return to China. 
After being essentially locked down for three years, the CEO of one of the largest booking platforms is betting on a Chinese travel boom. You have hundreds of millions, literally hundreds of millions of Chinese customers who want to travel. They've been wanting to travel for a couple of years. They've not been able to get out of the country. They want to go. So what's going to happen to global travel into the global travel industry when several hundred million Chinese people start traveling outbound to the U.S., to Europe, to Southeast Asia? In terms of demand, it's going to be a spike. Now, prior to the pandemic, Chinese travelers played a vital role in driving the travel economy. Just here in the U.S., spending on average $6,700 per trip. That's about 50% more than other international groups. That's according to the U.S. Travel Association. And really fueling the luxury sector as well. Profits there. Now, Fogel says spring of 2023, that's when he's expecting activity to really pick up. Although it's likely to start right around Lunar New Year, as long as we don't see any new restrictions come in the few weeks ahead. Brian? You know, I was prepping for this because I want to be half as smart as you are, Seaman. I, I did not realize the numbers were as big as they are. In 2017, it was more than 3 million people visited the U.S. from China. Came down a little bit. Of course, COVID just completely wiped it out. Is there any optimism that we could get back to those pre-COVID levels? That's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money, and those are really good stats to share, Brian. Uh, in 2017, over 3 million visited the United States. That actually came down in 2019 to around 2.7 million, and that was partly due to the trade war that was taking place between the United States and China at the time. Fast forward into now, here in 2022, uh, and going into next year, the expectation is that we see uh, a large rebound. The question is, to what extent? I think uh, what we've heard so far from travel experts and CEOs is that They'll start to travel to broader Asia, make their way to Europe and the U.S. So perhaps in the second half of next year is when we start to see the Chinese traveler really return um, with gumption. Is this testing supposed to really sort of hamstring travel in the near term or people do what we did? You take the test, it's negative, you get on a plane. It's that simple. Yeah, that's exactly right. And by the way, the Chinese are pretty used to taking COVID tests. Prior oh, yeah. to this reopening just eight weeks ago, they had to take two to three tests if they wanted to even travel between two provinces. So the idea that a COVID test, presenting a negative COVID test, would stop them from traveling, uh, that from yeah. experts we've spoken to, that doesn't seem to be the case. The big question, Brian, does that change? Does that restriction get heightened to something larger? We'll see. I remember Eunice Shun telling us at one point they were taking two to three a week, forced to take two to three per week for maybe over a year. Seemingly insane. Seema Modi, thank you very much. All right, so let's continue this conversation and discuss how China's reopening could impact global trade and business, among other things, as well as maybe the long-term future of President Xi. Joining us now is Kyle Bass, founder and chief investment officer at Heyman Capital Management, a longtime critic of China, rightfully so. Um, I'm going to start off with this because I don't think people realize sometimes, and we want to separate, Kyle, the Chinese people, I've been to China a couple times, met wonderful people, and the Chinese government. They are, like all governments, they are not representative of the people. This is Amnesty International. Last year, on Ch Amnesty International, the human rights situation across China continues to deteriorate. Lawyers are harassed and intimidated. There are unfair trials, lengthy detect, uh, detention, lack of freedom expression, arbitrary mass detention, torture, against Muslims. That is a quick perusement. Are people underestimating the grimness of this administration of President Xi? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, Brian, great, great to be here tonight. Good to, good to see you. Um, you know, look, you, you separate the people from the government. Uh, let's assume that roughly 1.4 billion uh, Chinese nationals in total. You have to remember there are 90 million members of the Chinese Communist Party. And the rest of the Chinese population is, is actually at the pleasure of the government, i.e. if the government asks you or demands for you to uh, spy in any way for them in anything that you're doing in any foreign country, you're obligated to do so, or they will uh, harass and or throw your family in jail. So it, it's actually hard to, to draw the line you want to draw, Brian, uh, when you're thinking about it from a national security perspective for the West. So while I hear you, I'm not sure I hear you uh, loud and clear. Um, one of the other things that I want to mention is, especially given, given the last person that, that you interviewed here on travel, just remember, a month ago, Xi Jinping and the Communist Party were literally welding their citizens into their buildings. And now, all of a sudden, there's an about face where they, they are free to travel. And as you probably saw, Italy uh, said that 50 percent of Chinese passengers landing in Italy are infected with COVID. And that's why you're seeing immediate responses from the West on demands for testing. But that policy change was diametrically opposed to the prior uh, policy, which was actually one of Xi Jinping's, uh, uh, call it, uh, marquee policies. So you have to actually question whether or not Xi Jinping is actually losing some of his, uh, let's just say, Communist Party position where he is, because one of his core policies was zero COVID and lockdowns, and they flipped that on its head and started shipping the Chinese population around the world half-infected uh, with COVID. So I, I just think it's it's worth talking about that a little bit more instead of maybe glossing over the fact that they've just changed policy and moved on. Well, what do you think it means? What, why I think would it she means do that... Do, do, is, it, is he afraid for his own reign? Oh, I, I actually think it's, it's different than that. Again, this is my opinion. Uh, it sure looks to me that the standing committee uh, of the Politburo uh, might have overruled his policies given the, the kind of outbreaks of riots across the country. And as you know, those riots started with kind of unfair pay and unclean, unsavory work uh, conditions at Apple's iPhone manufacturer uh, 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 over there, and which, of course, had nothing to do with COVID at the time. And then they kind of morphed into uh, much larger anti-COVID lockdown rallies. And China was forced to, I think, change their, their stripes. But, but Xi's policy was kind of hard and fast with an iron fist, and it flipped. So what I, what I think is I think she got outvoted and overridden by the other members, and that is actually worth thinking about, because heretofore he has had supreme reign, and his policies have been carried uh, through 100%, and this is a big one to be flipped. And if, and if it doesn't make sense for a lot of our viewers, you know, they hear that China wants to be the biggest economy, the most important economy in the world, and then China locks down their economy for a year plus longer than almost every other economy, oftentimes it's hard to square. I urge every one of our listeners and viewers to do just a background reading on Xi's childhood. This guy was, he, he's probably a sociopath. He was thrown into a work camp. He was marched through town, humiliated. His father was basically paraded through town and mocked as a former communist official. At one point he lived in a cave, literally, and then came back to kind of take control his childhood was so horrific by most standards. You just wonder, what is Xi's ultimate goal? 
economically. Well, it's not humanitarian. We know that. <laughs> uh, it, you know, I think it, it goes back to when they announced uh, China 2025 and their goal of global primacy. And, and if you go back and read uh, the working papers, they they basically stated in in, in no uh, in no other words other than they want global primacy in many of the world's uh, let's say most interesting endeavors, right? Semiconductors, technology, uh, base materials, uh, um, uh, rare earth metals, uh, and they announced that, and they they even let they even uh, 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 gave the working papers to the rest of the world. Now they've since uh, tried to recant, uh, but I think their their position is global primacy at any and all costs. And I think that that our hope of China westernizing we made a bet on them back in two thousand one, uh, allowing them to ascend the WTO, thinking that if we showed them how democracy and how investment. Uh, in, in, in your economy can really produce fantastic returns and grow your, your GDP fantastically yeah. uh, it has actually been a bad bet. Uh, and they, they've gone any other way other than going, uh, going in reverse. And so, uh, Brian, I think that going forward, we're going to see more tension between the two. I think this travel blip is yet a blip. You mentioned 3 million people traveling to the U.S. in 2017. You remember there were 450,000 Chinese students uh, living and in, and uh, uh, studying in America, three million is not that many. Yeah, you know, and you talked about global primacy. I know that that she was just in the Middle East. Um, you look at, of course, I talk about OPEC and, and oil a lot, and you look at where the oil is flowing, and you do wonder: is she's goal to sort of create two completely separate global economies, with the exception of China exporting to us? Because the reality is. We don't sell a lot to China. You can look at the trade data. It's pretty small. It's about the GDP of Maryland, I think it is. A lot of that scrap metal and things like that. We buy a ton from them. But if I'm President Xi, who arguably, by the way, despite his childhood, rough childhood, it seems to be fairly long thinking, is create a separate economy, Russia, China, maybe India, Iran, that part of the world, separate and distinct, maybe even from a currency perspective, than the United States. Well, that, that's their hope, Brian. And I think it's important to make a few notes here. Number one, she is the first Chinese leader to ever visit the Middle East. Okay, that's, that's an important thought. Uh, second of all, uh, you know, his visit to uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and his desire to kind of create an exchange, and this, this has been announced, he's trying to create an exchange that that basically tries to get the counterparties in the Middle East to accept RMB or the or the yuan, uh, China's uh, national currency, as payment in exchange for oil. Well, that'd be an interesting. It's an it's an interesting idea. Uh, it's still just an idea right now because no one around the world accepts the yuan, uh, and you can't spend it anywhere because China still has a closed capital account. Now, what they're trying to do with their digital currency is insidious. It's, it's a very, it's worth us all paying a lot of attention to. They are trying to force the use of the Chinese digital, call it central bank digital currency, the digital yuan. Uh, they're trying to force its use amongst their trading partners uh, and amongst investors in China. And that would kind of vault yeah. them overnight into being a currency that means something. Does it, does it dethrone the dollar as the, as the global hegemonic leader? It doesn't. But could it move it eight to 10 percentage points, which would be- sure. 
a quantum leap from from zero. It would be a quantum leap. Final question. If they go for some massive post-COVID stimulus, monetary fiscal policy, boom, the rest of the world tightening, they go loose. Could that change our economy? Could that could that maybe keep us out of recession? Uh, I don't think so, Brian. I think that if if you look at China's reserve numbers, um, they are woefully under-reserved and under-dollared. Uh, I look, I'm, I'm maybe one of the few that believes that uh, the, the magical point at which COVID showed up uh, was the point in time in which their, their capital account, uh, or more importantly, their current account was headed uh, below zero, meaning the net flows of capital in and out of China uh, were headed towards a balance and potentially headed towards uh, below zero. Uh, and you remember, they still have a closed capital account. We give them the benefit of the doubt yeah. of, of this GDP number converted back to dollars when you and I both know if they freely traded the RMB and allowed the Chinese uh, people to invest, travel and spend abroad, their currency would drop 40 or 50 percent in its value and their dollar based GDP would go yeah. with it. Uh, so I, I think that the the stimulus number, stimulus idea uh, of China uh, is something that I just I think they can. They can jawbone the markets like they have been, but you'll see that they will not follow through in releasing speculative fervor back into real estate because the real estate market really brought down their birth rate and the speculative frenzy that went on there uh, changed the balance of how China's economy operates. And she realized that. And I don't think he's going to reverse course there anytime soon. Well, you put out a poll on J. Kyle Bass on Twitter. Would you invest in China right now? So far, 88 percent. No. J. Kyle Bass, thanks for coming on, my man. It's a good discussion, a serious conversation. Have a great day. Happy New Year, Kyle. Pleasure talking with you. Happy New Year, too. Bye. All right. Thank you very much. All right. So that's in China. Their markets do affect ours. But today we had a very good day in the stock market. Let's see how we did. All the major averages ending in the green. The Dow up 345. NASDAQ up 2.6%. By the way, we know it's been a rough year. but And don't tell anybody this. But we've actually had a really good quarter. S&P's up like 10% this quarter. And with today's move, the Dow and the S&P turning positive for the week. That's thanks in part to Apple, biggest company in the markets, biggest company in the world, snapping a four-day slide. Still on pace for its worst year since 2008. But a little bright spot heading into the new year this quarter. It was actually very good for the U.S. equity markets. But again, don't tell anybody. It's just between us. All right, this CNBC special taking stock 2023 is just getting started. Here's what's ahead. Tonight, a chip glut in the offing? What China exposure means for the semis in 2023? Plus, source of concern? How will China's change in COVID policy impact how you get the goods? And deep impact. A closer read on the Far East economic heft you can't afford to ignore. That and more when we return on CNBC. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. All right, welcome back to the CNBC special taking stock. It has certainly been a tough year, well, for the whole market, but for semiconductor stocks in particular. The SMH set to close out 2022 with seven straight months of losses. And with the big chip makers beginning to diversify away from China to try to streamline their supply chains, what could next year hold for the sector? Joining us now is Stacey Rasgon, Bernstein Senior Analyst and Managing Director. Stacey, good to see you on again. Uh, good to be here. Tell me it's got to get better. Uh, 2023 is going to be a better year for SMH and semi-investors. Yeah, you know, at least the advantage now is that I think most investors are anticipating a downturn. For 2023, they're expecting revenues year over year to decline. And so now it's a question of degree and magnitude and timing. And like, when is the trough? The reason the semi-stocks have been weak, especially in the second half of this year, is they're anticipatory. So the stocks tend to react before the actual numbers tend to reset. And it turns out the best time to buy the stocks, if you could time it perfectly, is about three months before the estimates bottom. And so that'll be the thing. Like, if the estimates bottom early in the year, that may be... That may give the, the, the stocks time to, uh, to run mm-hmm. on if we can get that recovery. But that, that's going to be the question now, not is there a downturn coming, but what's the magnitude, what's the degree, what's the timing, and, and when have the, the estimates bottomed to the sense that the investors can feel comfortable buying the stocks? But, um, we, but we're not talking about a declining industry, right? Are we, we're just talking about uh, declining growth rates. Those are so, very different things. Well, you need to separate out short-term and long-term. I mean, in any given year, the industry can certainly decline. It is a cyclical industry. It has up years and down years. However, through the cycle, the industry should grow. And, you know, everybody's been throwing out this, like, trillion-dollar number in 10 years or whatever. Um, it doesn't take a lot. Like, mid-single-digit growth over the cycle will get you to a trillion dollars in, in 10 years, plus or minus. Maybe it's 8, maybe it's 12, like, whatever. We'll, we'll get there. That doesn't mean you can't have downturns along the way, like, like, 5% growth over the cycle could be up 20% one year and down 15 the next. Like, it happens like that. Yeah, a longer term. I mean, I, I would – maybe I'm just making this up, but it would seem like logically, given the growth of the world and technology, in five years, we're going to be using more semiconductors of all kinds than we are today, correct? I mean, is that a fair yeah, statement? I, look, I feel pretty I, confident saying pretty, that, Stacey. I, I'm actually pretty positive on semiconductors over the long term. I, I think it is – it's absolutely true, like – you. 
their their penetration into everyday life is just going up and up and up. And, and there's more and more devices that are using them. And the devices that are using them, the amount that they're using is going up and content is increasing. I think all of that is true. Right? You've, you've got tons of new applications, whether it's artificial intelligence or or it's 5G or it's IoT or what, what, whatever you want to think about. Those applications are there. Yeah. And over that time frame, over the long term, I have no problem believing that this is a great. I, I love this industry. Right. Oh. And, and, and what stocks of, you love the industry? Are there stocks you love? We want to make some money. So, so let's uh, again. You need to you need to still be cognizant of those nearer term threats. So, like I said, you can love the industry and still have down downturns. They they do happen. If we are going into a downturn next year, I, the things that we would prefer at this point are stocks that have already cut number one, and and ideally cut a lot because again, investors mm-hmm. want to be sure, be more confident that the the bottom is is closer to being in. Um, I'd want stocks that cut. I want stocks um, that have both cut and have a secular story that I think can play out among those those long-term trends and where the valuations get to the point where these things are really attractive. In my coverage, those would be names like like an AMD mm-hmm. or Qualcomm, maybe even, even an NVIDIA, not as much on the valuation side, but on the other on the other two. Um, okay. Those are some of the characteristics of things that I would be looking for in semis, given where we're sitting right now. Well said. AMD, Qualcomm, names to watch. What a year. Stacey Rasgon, have a happy new year. You're looking forward to a new new year. I know it. Come on. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) So a lot of investors are, too. All right. Still ahead, Goldman Sachs warning that China's earlier than expected by some reopening could actually disrupt the supply chain more, at least in the near term. We'll explain why. Coming up. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, welcome back. Goldman Sachs out with a warning about the global supply chain, saying that China's reopening will likely cause more pain than help, at least in the short term. However, the bank notes the reopening should provide a boost once we get further into the new year. Joining us now is Katrina L., Asia-Pacific economist at Moody's, and Nathan Resnick, founder and CEO of Sourceify. Uh, Katrina, the idea with Goldman, I'll summarize it quickly, is basically, A, people are going to get sick, as we know they are, miss work, somebody else gets sick, they stay home. B, they're going to try to travel. Hopefully not those two things go together. Do you expect near-term disruptions from China? Definitely. And I think we've already seen the the first signs of that with some disruption to auto production in China as a result of the, the spike in infections, workers getting sick and not being able to actually show up and do their their jobs. So we're already seeing that uh, short-term disruption play out. And I think, 
you know, the experience of other economies that have already, um, you know, reopened. And that bumpy transition period did show us that we did see quite significant supply chain disruptions. For example, uh, when the Delta wave hit in the third quarter of last year. So, you know, there was a spike in supply chain, um, you know, stress mm -hmm. for about two, three months as a result of that wave. Nathan, Sourceify is in Guangzhou. I mean, what are you seeing? You know, what we're seeing is that pretty much, you know, more and more people have COVID. This opening really caused a widespread, you know, release of COVID. There's uh, so many factory workers that are at home sick. And I think it's going to get even worse, especially with the Chinese New Year. As those factory workers travel home, they're going to question, you know, should I go back right away if I'm sick? And so I think in the short term, there's definitely going to be a labor shortage. Yeah. And what would you expect back to you, Nathan, if we get that labor shortage in the near term? I'm a U.S. company. I'm trying to get my goods from China. I've been dealing with this for three years now. What am I expecting? Should I just say, forget it? I got to go to Vietnam in the near term, you yeah. know, in the medium term. India. Yeah, I mean, you know, a, a lot of, you know, U.S. brands have been already expanding their supply chains outside of China to Vietnam, India, you know, really all across Southeast Asia. And it's a trend that we continue to see even as China has opened up so many brands, you know, whether it be automakers or fashion brands want to expand outside of China. And I think, though, it's a really, you know, positive trend to see China opening up. At the end of the day, there are short term, you know, delays that are happening because factory yeah. workers just and then you wonder, Katrina, do you have a longer term? And I mean, a year plus. Listen, we've seen I don't know how China's going to go. They don't have a good vaccine. They don't take the Western vaccines. But the rest of the world, we saw cases spike, normalized. Luckily, in America, cases actually come down in the last two weeks. When could we expect a normalcy, a pre-2020 from China? How long? Yeah, that's really the, the million dollar question. And it does really that's what's generating a lot of uncertainty about how this this reopening in China is going to play out because you know we've got the the known kind of downside risks in the near term from uh, you know supply chain stress strain on the healthcare system but we don't actually know how consumers and businesses are going to actually you know respond to finally you know moving away from that zero COVID policy that they've been dealing with mm -hmm. for, for almost three years now. So it's a, a significant amount of uncertainty that, um, you know, is plaguing the, the short term, but also the medium term yeah. outlook as well. I guess we want to know the economy and the markets. we got to watch COVID cases again at some point. We won't have to talk about this ever again, I hope. Katrina, Nathan, happy new year both. Thank you very much. All right. Much more to come on the CBC special Taking Stock. Coming up, Strategy Session. Our experts weigh in on China's major economic impact. Plus, East meets Web, your playbook for Chinese internet stocks in the new year. And Goliath versus Goliath, making dollars and cents of the ongoing geopolitical fallout among the world's biggest economies. When we return on CNBC. All right, welcome back to the CBC special. Let's get a quick check on how we close out the day on Wall Street. We're showing you so much because we're actually in the green heading into the new year. Let's have a little good news, a little holiday cheer. It's the color of eggnog. The Nasdaq up, well, if it's a shamrock shake, I guess would be more likely. 2.6% gain for the Nasdaq today. The Dow up 345. Tech communications services all rising with just one trading day left in the year and just two 
you know, regular days left. We're actually very positive for the quarter. One of the better quarters we've had for the stock market in a couple of years. Breaking a three-quarter losing streak, all this, the major average took to close out their worst year since 2008. Not sure how many times I could say that to you. I'm sorry. Tech obviously hit hard this year, but it is not the only down sector. Ten of the S&P 11 sectors are negative for the year. What is the only positive one? You know. I don't even have to tell you. It's energy of 57%. All right. In the meantime, investors waiting for what comes next out of China. Lockdown measures there weighing on economic growth for some time. So would it be fair to expect a reopening to swing the momentum in the other direction sooner than later? Let's bring in John Rutledge, chief economist, reinvestment strategist, Safanon, CBC contributor, and Derek Scissors, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I don't know. I mean, John, you've been to China so many times. I'm sure met so many wonderful people. I, I just can't imagine what they've gone through. And we've talked to our reporter, Yunus Yun, who lives in Beijing many times, Two and a half, three years of just harsh lockdowns. And, and oftentimes, we say lockdown. It's like, don't go anywhere. They're actually locked in to apartment buildings by a police force from the outside. Now COVID's running rampant. When will China see a normalcy, in your view? Well, they're actually locked into their apartments as they were in Shanghai during yep. the two-month lockdown. And now, of course, it's every man for himself I think that the one positive silver lining in this mess we've got is that without medical facilities and without medical equipment like ventilators, this thing is going to blow through China very fast. It'll make a lot of people sick. It'll kill a lot of people, but it'll also bring their economy back earlier than we might have thought otherwise, because now at least we know that zero COVID is is ending. Yeah. And Derek, I guess to our previous segment, and we're, none of us, as far as I'm not an epidemiologist, I don't think you are, and, and I know John's not. We're going to have to wait to see how this thing plays out, correct? 1.3 billion people. This could take a while. And I only bring it up not for medical reason, obviously, yes. Human reason, yes. But economic reason with people out of work for weeks at a time with COVID. Right. That, that's right. It, it is moving very quickly through coastal cities, just like John said, just like you'd expect. But coastal cities are not China. There are inland cities that COVID is going to hit. Then there are rural areas with hundreds of millions of Chinese that COVID is going to hit. So uh, Beijing and Shanghai are going to say, you know, January, it's all turned around. And that may very well be true. Uh, but the rest of China, this is going to take several months because China is so big that even though local areas clear fairly quickly, um, the country as a whole is going to be suffering for several more months. Yeah. And then, John, let's let's assume sooner than later kind of does what it did around the world runs rampant it's a hellacious time hopefully they build up immunity get maybe bring in some western vaccines despite their national pride it seems like that's what they they need to do we'll see if they do that one year from today would you expect a quote regular china a pre-covid china just running on all economic cylinders or no well in terms of numbers perhaps but of course we have a hard time trusting the numbers anyway brian in terms of the people, absolutely not. These people are now walking wounded PTSD survivors Traumatized. after the lockdown period and the men in the Michelin suits pushing them around. Mm -hmm. Now they're going through this massive sickness and epidemic. Uh, as Derek said, uh, this is something that the trading cities, you know, uh, the coastal cities in Beijing basically are on fire right now. Uh, some reports are more than half the people in Beijing and Shanghai are now already infected. 
And uh, that'll happen also in places like Zhengzhou, where they have a lot of, uh, a lot of trading activity and so forth. Uh, the rest of the country will take more time. So it's a humanitarian disaster. But a year from today, there will be a billion and a half people who have been through true, two traumas, the likes of the Great Depression. And that leaves permanent marks on people. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at what we've got here. Long COVID here has already shrunk the labor force, reduced productivity, and changed all sorts of things in our own economy. Imagine what it does there with what's happening now. Well, it's hard to comprehend in part all the things they've been through. It's going to be like our, or at least my grandparents, where, you know, they, they never, the, the, the effects of the Depression never yeah. left them. They, they hoarded food. Yeah. They put money in mattresses literally 40 years later because they were so scarred by what happened over those years. Derek, there's, there's something amazing about China because we consider it this economic powerhouse. And in many ways, it is in its own way, right? They're the cheap manufacturer to the world. Stock market stinks. Shanghai, the Shanghai stock market, what, is 10-year lows, 14-year lows? Yeah, I mean, people make a mistake with China that they think it has a normal stock market or a normal by our standard stock market. It seems yeah, rigged all the time. in Shang some ways, honestly. Yeah. It's just it's 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 influenced by policy statements more than macroeconomic performance or profit. So when people say, hey, next year, I think the Chinese economy is going to do much better. So therefore, stocks will rise. That, that doesn't follow at all. Uh, what matters is whether China's government says we're going to be supporting firms and, and helping them record higher paper profits mm -hmm. with subsidies and anti-competitive policies. That could happen for a while to boost sentiment, and then Chinese stocks will rise. When it stops, the stock market will stop. But it's not based on you know, the most efficient firms win or the economy's booming. Yeah. Shanghai stocks peaked in 2007. There's been a lot of Chinese growth since then. Hasn't mattered to the stock market. Two, the same will be true next year. Yeah, Brian, there's really two yeah. follow-on points from Derek's. One is that if you really believe in China's growth and you can't help yourself that you have to buy something Chinese, buy Rio Tinto in Australia. I mean, they, yeah. they will make money when China grows. And buy other play, other companies located in places where there are judges and all black robes and audit standards. We've got believe. my RBI coming up. John, you, you might have read it because it's on the incredible growth of China you got to hear it. John Rutledge, Derek Scissors, thank you both very much. Coming up, we will talk about investing in China with the head of Crane Shares, which has the biggest China ETF. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about investing in China. One big way to do it, maybe the biggest, is through the K Crane Shares, K-Web ETF. And bring in Brendan Ahern. He is chief investment officer at Crane shares. Brendan, good to have you on. You probably heard many of our conversations. What makes you confident about investing in China, given all that we have talked about and addressed tonight? Yeah, one thing, Brian, that we always want to point out to investors is that if we looked at the definition of China, MSCI China, 20, 10 years ago, MSCI China was 50% financials and energy. Now, I don't think anyone thinks 50% of the Chinese population works in financials and energy, but that's how people were invested. And I think, you know, we then went on a great decade of growth investing, and yet MSCI China only had 2% in technology. That 2% of MSCI China technology actually went up nearly 2,000% in 
um, almost three times better than the S&P 500. So, so part of what we're trying to do at Crane Shares is give people access to the segments of China's population that are growing very rapidly, such as we do with KWEB. And clearly, you trust investing in China because I said in the previous segment, parts of their market felt rigged. I said that because you cannot short stocks in the domestic market, and I could not buy domestic shares on the Shanghai Exchange as an American living in America. So it's, a, it's kind of a closed market outside of the Hang Seng. Yeah, definitely, Brian. You know, you bring up a good point. You know, you got to look at, say, K-Web is offshore China. It's what foreigners define China, Hong Kong and U.S.-China ADRs. And so it's more reflective of what do foreign investors think about China? We can contrast that with the Shanghai and the Shenzhen, which is 95% owned by investors in China. And within Crane Shares, we give people access through the ETF KVA. Uh, it's 50 mega cap Chinese uh, Shanghai Shenzhen names. But it's what, what the Chinese think about China and what foreigners think about China can be two really, really different things. And, and they, they're not synchronized. They move very differently. Yeah. And so just to your point, Brian, you know, it's much more difficult to get access to these Chinese A-shares, something that we do for investors at Crane Shares via KBA. And there's, you know, we kind of have two markets, NASDAQ and NICE. I know there's some others, but that's kind of our thing. They really have three. They've got Shanghai, they've got Shenzhen, and then they've got Hong Kong. How do you differentiate the three? Explain it in layman's terms quickly for our audience why they are different, and they are. Yeah, Shanghai, large cap, mega cap, value sectors, financials, energy, materials, industrials. Shenzhen, more like NASDAQ, private companies, um, you know, mid cap, small cap, Hong Kong, large cap names, but Hong Kong really reflective of what do foreigners think about China versus Shanghai, Shenzhen? What do the Chinese think about China? Well put. We learned. And any day you could learn is a good day. Brendan Ahern, rhymes with learn. Crane Shares, CEO. Appreciate it, Brendan. Happy New Year. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you, Brian. And Brian, I just wanted, yep. I, I know you were very close with Scott Menard. I just want to pass along my condolences of, on behalf of Crane Shares to you, the Menard, as well as the Guggenheim families through this tough time. I, uh, you know what? I really appreciate that, Brendan. I mean that. Uh, Scott's uh, is going to be a big miss, and we're still processing. And thank you, by the way, for that. It's, really, a, it's a huge loss for the asset manage, management industry, Ron, yep. professionally. I'm sure on a personal level, very, very difficult. Yeah, unbelievable guy, by the way. Brendan, thank you for saying that. Really appreciate that. All right, yeah, we're all still kind of processing, Scott. Uh, leaving us too early. Scott, miss you, my man. All right, plenty more to come in the CBC special, Taking Stock. Coming up, it's a small world after all. How will geopolitical jockeying impact your portfolio? Keep it here as Taking Stock China continues on CNBC. All right, welcome back. It is time for an evening. RBI, let's get random interesting on China's growth and energy demands because it is bonkers, truly. Because while we talk a lot about climate and carbon here, as we should, China is the real black hole when it comes to global emissions. Consider this. Nearly 60% of China's energy grid is powered by coal. In 2020, China put three times as much coal-fired power generation online. That was more than double any other type of energy source. In fact, Yale University says so much coal consumption is going online in coming years 
that it will amount to about six times Germany's entire coal capacity. Remember, that number is just China's planned new coal-fired power plants, which means a couple of things. First, China, along with India, is likely going to be driving global coal use to record highs this year, next year, the year after that, etc. And consider that China is responsible for about one-fourth of all global CO2 emissions. So even as China does build out huge new quantities of things like wind and solar, it is old coal that is powering China's massive growth. Now, China needs a lot of power, maybe in a magnitude that is difficult for many of us to comprehend, particularly if you have never been to China and seen the size and scale of what's happening there. Listen to this. China now has more than 100 cities with populations of more than 1 million people. By comparison, the United States has just 10 cities with more than a million people, and all 10 of those cities combined, New York, L.A., Chicago, Philly, Houston, they all merge. They're still smaller than just Shanghai by itself. And if that did not get you, maybe this will. China's ultimately planning to combine three major cities, including Beijing, into one new massive super city that could be home to more than 130 million people. That is more people than the populations of most nations. And that is going to take a lot of power and apparently a lot of coal. It is not the climate news we need, but it is random and important. All right, China's sheer size has an outsized influence on global geopolitics. Bring in Dwardrick McNeil to talk about it. Dwardrick, good to have you on. I mean, I'm 130 million people in one mega city. I, it's, it's hard to put our brain around their, their, their ambitions and their needs. Well, I'll tell you, Brian, this is uh, one of the things that I'm watching in 2023, which is the governance of a country uh, as big as China under one man uh, rule. You know, there's been a lot of concern about the chaos that we've seen with the decision to uh, dissolve its zero COVID policy, leaving many analysts to question the governance of China under one man rule. You know, what are the authorities of uh, the state council and other ministries uh, to to really evaluate, debate, push back and adjust uh, policies uh, that may not be working? So these are real concerns that we have. And certainly when you look at uh, combining municipalities yeah. at this level, this just compounds the problem, Brian. Okay. Well, you said it twice. So I'll ask you. you. said one man rule. There is a Politburo. There's a Communist Party. There's a Politburo. And there's a Politburo Standing Committee. But you think she is, I mean, he is literally the man. Well, it's hard to know uh, at the moment, Brian, but the assumption for most analysts is that, yes, in fact, she is the man. And, you know, the real question is, what have what we seen over these last several uh, days with uh, with China's uh, dissolution of COVID policy just a one off or is this an implication of what one man rule will bring? And if that is the case, Brian, we're in for a long 2023 of chaos and a number of other policy uh, areas as well. And, well, and, and hopefully not the exportation of more COVID around the world, because we all know that testing is maybe not the exact the most perfect Solution. If you'd like to see one thing happen from China, that would be kind of a positive, right? Let's be optimistic to end the show and the year. What would it be, DeWardrick? Well, I think if you look at the message coming out of the Central Economic Work uh, Commission report, uh, Brian, they have really decided to shut down the aggressive deleveraging in the property sector. And I think 
that that is good news. You know, over 60 percent of urban household wealth is concentrated in residential property. So if you're going to really turn around China's economy and focus on growth in 2023, you're going to have to turn around the property sector. And again, we're hearing good news about that. But we'll have to wait and see if that really materializes in 2023. But that would be good news for a lot of people, Brian. I think they're building an aircraft carrier every six months, something like that. What's the risk of a military escalation, either with Taiwan or or us? Well, look, I think we've seen today what an aggressive approach to, at least in the South China Sea, China's actions are. And as the military continues to grow, there will be continued encounters like this in the South China Sea and Indian Ocean and other places. Yeah. Uh, certainly Taiwan, of course, is the hot button issue. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that in 2023. Uh, I certainly hope that there will not be uh, a hot war, yeah. but I think that is still the major pressure point with respect to U.S.-China relations on the national security and security front and a risk to businesses as well. Always Hi, appreciate your insight and wisdom. DeWardrick McNeil, have a great new year. We'll see you in 2023. Thank you. Folks, thank you all for tuning in to tonight's CNBC special, Taking Stock. Tomorrow night, we're going to bring it back home and talk about the American economy. Same time, same place. Have a great night, everybody. Shark Tank starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.